I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And, and this, this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. What is a celebrity memoir book club? A celebrity memoir book club is one very specific thing. It is not a general noun. It's a proper noun. <laughs> and it is where Claire and Ashley read the book so that you don't have to. And then we just rehash them in a proper way. Yeah, we give a little bit of nuance and spin and narrative. We contextualize in our own brains these books for you and if you don't want the context go read the book on their own they're actually for sale wherever books are sold and by that I mean approximately two websites also by context we mean our sense of humor (laughs) we're not like adding dates and historical experiences to the context of these books we're just being like in my brain (laughs) but for this episode please join me in thanking credit karma for supporting our podcast credit karma is where you can apply with more confidence today if you're ready to apply head to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to see personalized offers and i want to give a quick thank you to the wormies who came out in chicago last week's episode was recorded before those shows so now we've experienced the shows and i just have to say a wonderful time was had by me yeah, and by me. I feel like your parents and friends and family were all very impressed yeah. by the Wormies show out. So thank you to the Wormies for making Ashley look good. Thank you to the Wormies for helping me with what it's all for. And that is impressing the people I grew up with and making them take me seriously. They did for a brief moment, a brief moment in time. Then the next day they said, so how's your regular job going? <laughs> And I wanted to give a quick bracing of the selves, a quick moment for bracing. Brace yourselves. We will be taking a week (laughs) off in June. I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. We're tired. It's hard. Claire's going to Croatia and I'm going to a nap. June 14th, there will be no new main episode. There will still be a Patreon that week because worms never sleep except for sometimes. And Ashley. Yes, Claire. If you were a celebrity and you wrote a memoir, what would the title of last week's chapter be? I would call last week's chapter, Who Is She? And I don't mean that in like, who is she? TikTok slang. I mean it in like, my God, I went out of town for over two weeks and lost myself. Listen, sometimes I think I could live somewhere else, but I am a very, for us having almost no schedule, I do feel like I have a pretty regimented life schedule. And so to be gone and not in my own apartment for like 16 days, I feel like I was off solid ground. I might as well have been in fucking space. I have like no concept of time or place or anything. I just can't believe two whole weeks went by even though I wasn't here. I'm like, shouldn't correct me if I'm wrong. We know I'm no time zone expert. (laughs) But shouldn't New York have stayed on the same day that I left? And then when I came back, it was just the next day. And then the other two weeks happened in other cities. Like I haven't since they didn't happen Time in New York. exists where Ashley is. I love that everybody thinks I'm the bitch. And you're like, isn't it true that, <laughs> that the my, world the, time and space revolves around me No, Only Ashley exists. Yeah. So I just got back today and I'm really honestly, I had a great time, but I always think that it's going to be relaxing to be like, elsewhere and it never is as relaxing as just being in my house so I'm happy to be back ready to find myself again Claire if you were to write a memoir about your life and you were to write about last week what would that chapter be titled I've realized what I've done and I'm sorry Uh (laughs) uh-oh 
If you guys don't know, there is another like COVID spike. And I feel like everyone I know has COVID. And I was just like, what the fuck? Why are we having a COVID spike in May? I feel like we didn't have a COVID spike last year or the year before in May. I feel like things were dwindling at this point. I will say one thing I've seen about COVID is that it doesn't follow the American calendar. (laughs) No, it follows the calendar of when I try to go to Italy. Yeah. 100% after Croatia, I'm going to Italy finally. And I'm like, oh, it's just not going to happen. I'm like banking on it not happen not only that but mac who i've heard from a lot of you guys that you guys think we're broken up <laughs> well because you kept on talking about a breakup and i don't think you specified actually that it was a friend breakup if me and mac broke up i would be quite specific about it so and don't if worry. me and claire broke up we'd also be specific about it so i'm not the friend but we would in fact still be podcasting <laughs> <laughs> anyway I am bracing myself for not being able to go again. Like I really was like, what could go wrong this time? And then everyone around me is getting COVID. It's something I'm prepared for. And so I want to say I'm sorry to the world because if I would just stop trying to go to Italy, then COVID would be over. It is a war against me personally. (laughs) In the same way that Ashley is the only person who exists, I am the sole contributor of COVID. Yeah, you can't call me an evil narcissist when you're like, I have cast a plague upon the planet. (laughs) Because I won't stop trying to vacation. And listen, I'm sorry, but it's called self-care. And sometimes you have to put your needs first yeah anyway and do you know what else is self-care getting up and girl just washing your face the book we're covering by rachel hollis this week it's called girl wash your face and the subtitle is stop believing the lies about who you are so you can become who you were meant to be that is a mouthful it's a mouthful and it's also nothing. Do you know what I mean? And I think this book is a whole lot of nothing. And I'm so excited to get into it. If you don't know who Rachel Hollis is, neither did anybody. Rachel yeah. Hollis was like one of those Facebook mommy bloggers that went super viral in a very specific neck of the woods. And it was like 38-year-old moms of three who love Michaels and are like looking for inspiration to start their Etsy store, I would say. It was like a very niche yeah. Christian mom, millennial girl boss capitalism be the best pta lady and also boss bitch at work that you can be it was very ladies (laughs) ladies you have to wash your face (laughs) i will say if the thing that you need to buy a book to help you do is wash your face like you are struggling with like a deep depression claire and you need help coming from you i'm not struggling with the fact that i don't wash my face You just don't like to wash your face. I thought you were saying if you don't wash your face, you're struggling. And I was like, are you okay? Because I know that you're a notorious not face washer. I'm not struggling with it because I feel like I don't have to. And I'm just saying if I wanted to, I think I could do it without the help of an entire book. Yeah. A book that literally never once covers like personal hygiene, honestly. (laughs) Anyway, so this book, every single chapter is a lie that she then debunks. So we're going to tell you all the lies throughout the book. We're going to see whether or not she can debunk them, whether or not she can inspire us to be our best bitches selves. Yes. But first, I'm going to start with her intro because I think it's always fair to give the author like they get to outline what the point of their book is so that then we can hold them accountable to their own rubric. Yeah. She opens this book with a very tongue in cheek little introduction about you're probably reading this intro to see if you want to buy this book and probably you'd rather buy the life changing magic of tidying up. Which, can I say, if you're deciding between this book and Marie Kondo, for the love of God, pick Marie Kondo. She is an icon, and Rachel Hollis is a Facebook blogger. And ruined. And a bad person. Oh, speaking of bad person, I do want to trigger warn before we go any further for suicide. That doesn't make her a bad person, but also fat phobia, which this book runs rampant with. So if 
reading like really problematic things about weight loss is triggering to you, I don't know that this is the episode for you. Oh, also, I didn't end the Rachel Hollis narrative with <laughs> she is now a canceled woman. <laughs> She's a canceled divorced woman who is rife with issues. And I will say we love divorce. Claire and I are extremely pro-divorce. Rachel Hollis is extremely anti-divorce, which is why we revel in her divorce. And pre-divorce, she was charging people $2,000 a weekend to go to her seminars that her and her husband taught on how to have a better marriage just like them. Yes. So the irony, it's hard to not feel the irony a is sick joy in the irony. Thick and sweet. <laughs> like yogurt. <laughs> So she says, you're probably reading this intro, deciding if you want to read this book. This book is about a bunch of hurtful lies and one important truth. The truth, you and only you are ultimately responsible for who you become and how happy you are. That's the takeaway. It's just not true. It's just not true that some people don't have external circumstances that affect their lives. She also gets into the fact that so she started out as a lifestyle blogger, which is something that is mind boggling to me that and again, this almost plays into I think like we did a Hillsong episode and we've talked about Tinks a little bit on the patreon i do think it's partially the consumer's fault if they thought that there was a single human being on earth who could teach them how to frost a cupcake organize your home she says quote why i researched 30 different ways to clean out your front load washer before i taught my tribe how to do it like if you're learning how to clean a washer from a woman who is then also like by the way this is how you raise children and love your husband no one person has all of that figured out but she also was like follow my words so I don't yeah. want to say like there is some culpability here and that she was saying I am successful I am perfect I am the example of success of I did my own program and look how great I came out so she says I set out to be honest from the beginning which is funny because clearly she wasn't this book came out in 2018 <laughs> when she's 35 years old I think she got divorced in 2020 yeah so clearly she wasn't living the perfect life that she was purporting in this book. But she says she had an idea. What if I wrote a whole book about all the ways I've struggled and then explained the steps that helped me get past those times? What if I talked about all my failures and embarrassing moments? So I've had 30 years of trying so hard in some areas of my life that I am crushing it. And in others, I'm constantly working on different angles to attack the same problem. So she's calling out to people who have had basically every insecurity literally ever. Mm -hmm. There's a real blanket statement on who this book can apply to. She says, have you ever believed that you aren't good enough, that you're not thin enough, that you're unlovable, that you're a bad mom? Have you ever believed that you deserve to be treated badly and that you'll never amount to anything? All lies. She really equates thinness and weight loss. We're going to get into this later, but this is just the first little rearing of its head with almost every other problem that's ever existed. We'll start with chapter one, the lie. Something else will make me happy. Here's the thing about this book that I think me and Ashley both agree on is that nothing she's saying is wrong or I'd say 90% of what she's saying is not wrong. Okay. I will say if you looked at the outline for this book and went through the bullet points of each chapter, they're all just like basic Pinteresty phrases that are correct. It is true that the grass is always greener on the other side. Like something else won't make you happier you have to be happy where you are, like wherever you go, there you are, all that bullshit. That's true. But every example and explanation is so unhinged and not correct. It's like all the filling of the book is something that I so disagree with <laughs> on every level. Yeah, 100%. But if you want to read the outline, go to town. Well, I mean, yeah, every self-help book essentially says the same stuff. Like you have to choose to make a change for the things you're not happy with. And so nothing she's saying here is mind blowing. But then what really gets me is 
the way that she tries to open up and be vulnerable to me is such bullshit. She reminds me a lot of Lena Dunham in that she puts forth all of these open stories and like, I'm going to cut my heart open and bleed for you. And here's like the most traumatic, embarrassing, humiliating but story But what she's life. saying is nothing. So we start with the very first story, the very first line of this chapter one. I peed my pants last week. Not full on peed my pants like that one time at summer camp when I was 10 years old. And then she goes on to be like, I was out with my kids on the trampoline jumping. And She's birthed three children. So this is not shocking vulnerability. It's just like the basic truths of being a woman. Yeah, even if you haven't birthed three children, I mean, who among us on a trampoline <laughs> hasn't peed a little? Trampolines are all fun and pee. <laughs> I'm sorry. Then she goes on to be like, it's true. I'm admitting it. Blah, 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 blah. And then she goes, y'all, I'm about as unglamorous as you can get. She's from California. But she loves to say y'all. So then she goes, and I don't mean in a celebrity stars are just like us kind of way. This is not like that time Gwen Paltrow went makeup free and with her perfect skin and angel blonde hair tried to convince us that she was just a regular gal. I'm like, yeah, nobody was saying you were Gwyneth Paltrow. Well, that's what I was going to say. When I read this section, I was like, okay, people ask us all the time, what do we consider a celebrity to cover? It's not Rachel Hollis. I mean, Rachel Hollis isn't a celebrity in our standards. Rachel Hollis is a celebrity by her own standards, and that's why she qualifies. So then she goes on to be like, look at all these things that I'm struggling with. Like that time I peed on the trampoline and... She talks about how there's so many things you could feel like you're failing. This is important because I want you to understand my sweet, precious friend that we're all falling short, that even though she looks great on Instagram, she still feels like she's failing at some things in her life. And she goes, what I worry about the most is that you've stopped trying. And she says, like, listen, it may be so hard to do everything right that you don't do anything right. And to her, that's not OK. You can be perfect, but only at like 65 percent of the things you attempt. Yeah. And she says, you are meant to be the hero of your own story. If you're unhappy, that's on you. Once again, this is true for like most upper middle class white privileged people. <laughs> like I do think that there are a lot of factors where you're like, I don't know what's what's so hard. <laughs> then she gives this example. She talks about how she did come from kind of like a violent, unsafe, unstable home. But it was a home where she lived with both parents and they did have food on the table. Her dad was a pastor, actually, but he was like an angry man. There's a lot of screaming, and crying. And then when she was 14 years old, her brother did kill himself. And so she, at 17, left and never looked back, moved to L.A. But this line kills me. She goes, most people don't notice the trees in Beverly Hills. They're much too busy coveting the mansions that sit below them. Um, who the fuck has ever gone to L.A. and not noticed the palm trees? That is like the icon of L.A. If you go to my Instagram and scroll back to when I moved to L.A., I think 20, 2012, I'm pretty sure there's like 18 Instagrams of just palm trees with like original Instagram filters. If you scroll back to our Instagram before we went to L.A., I was using a palm tree silhouette to say to people from L.A., L.A., we're doing an L.A. show. A palm tree is the representative of L.A. I also think it's so funny because she then points out that these beautiful palm trees in Beverly Hills, they were laid by the original landscape architect back at the beginning of the 20th century. They hug the wide streets in meticulous rows. I mean, they're artificially placed there. They're not native to that space. They don't naturally grow in perfect rows along the side of streets. So the thing that she's like this natural wonder that I'm taking in is like a deeply artificial thing. And I feel like that's indicative of her entire life. To be like, I'm the only one who noticed what it's like to be the perfect mom, what it's like to be perfect in every way, what it's like to really like curate your life for the internet. 
So then, I mean, honestly, out of nowhere, the chapter kind of ends and she's like, just because I was in beautiful LA doesn't mean that everything was perfect. I had to find happiness inside. And that's the end of the chapter. Because, okay, so the point is she was unhappy in her hometown. So she moved to LA to find happiness. But then even though LA has palm trees, she still wasn't happy until she found it within. I guess I don't understand what the whole point of the trampoline story is in relation to this chapter. None. Because like, what does that have to do with being glamorous? Because she's saying she's happy not because she's glamorous, even though you might think she's glamorous, which isn't that glamour. Can, can't glamour only be perceived by somebody else? Yeah. I mean, people are looking at her like she's the palm trees <laughs> in her mind. Also, I just want to say for her to be like, listen, if you can believe it, even though I'm on the trampoline in my giant house with my beautiful backyard, with my three children, having quality time with them, I'm still happy. And it's like, yeah, bitch, when else would you be happy if not like... If not like jumping on a trampoline with your family. I never got to have a trampoline in my childhood. Me either. And so for you to say, oh, a little bit of pee, a little bit of pee makes my life not great. You're too lucky. We could only all wish to have a little bit of pee on a trampoline. <laughs> Why do you think I work so hard every day? It's the one day I give my children the trampoline I couldn't have. Covered in pee. <laughs> happy pee. I will say I got bug and she pees on people a little bit sometimes when she's happy. And I'm like, this is the joy of my life. A little bit of puppy happy pee. Pee's not so bad. <laughs> when it's happy. When it's joy pee. This is okay. I promise we won't say that again in this whole episode. Or honestly the rest of our lives. Honestly the rest of our lives. I, I swear. Okay. <laughs> The next chapter is The Lie, I'll Start Tomorrow. So this is a chapter about dieting where she says, we talk about the things we'd like to do, be, try, and accomplish. But once we get to the moment we're actually doing it, we fold faster than a card table after a bunco night. She's so relatable. So she talks about going out to dinner with some friends and how she had promised herself she'd work out that day and she didn't. So then after dinner and drinks and drinks, she ran on the treadmill and she put it on Snapchat and her friends were like, I can't fucking believe that you ran after dinner. And she's like, believe it, sister. She also calls people sister a lot. Yeah. Believe it, sister, because I keep promises to myself and I promised myself I'd work out. And so I did it. And she says, basically holding yourself accountable to diets and exercise is the most noble and indicative thing of your character that could possibly exist. So she says, imagine that you had that friend from work who was constantly starting something new. Every three Mondays, she announced a new diet or goal. And then two weeks later, it just ended. What if you called her on it? Like, Hey, Pam, I thought you were doing the whole 30. Meanwhile, Pam is still sitting in the break room, eating a meat lover's pizza and telling you she was doing whole 30. Y'all, would you respect her? This woman who starts and stops over and over again, would you count on Pam or the friend who keeps blowing you off for stupid reasons? I mean, literally, <sighs> yes, I would count on Pam because Pam orders pizza to the break room. <laughs> I cannot imagine in my life saying, even if I believed it in my heart out loud, I don't respect anybody who doesn't stick to a diet, that that is like the core tenet of a responsible human being as somebody who never fucking indulges if you have ever in your life gone out with friends enjoyed the moment lived a beautiful evening where you laughed and indulged and then didn't get home and fucking run drunk then you're a piece of shit with no backbone how can i trust you to do fucking anything if you didn't run on the day that you said you were gonna run i will say this chapter is the seedling for a severe eating disorder to say that you should never in your life 
stray from your diet or stray from your exercise routine. Otherwise, you are a moral failure is exactly what causes people to really end up in rehab. I mean, it's like ED 101 to be like, this is indicative of the type of person you are and your value in society and whether or not other people should love you and like you. Yeah. Sick in the head. She says, when you really want something, you will find a way. When you don't really want something, you'll find an excuse. And it's like, yeah, that's why eating and exercise shouldn't be the example for this chapter because when you really want something, you will find a way. And your body is not that important. Your diet and exercise habits aren't the most important thing. When you don't really want something, you'll find an excuse because it doesn't matter. That's a correct statement. It's just the thing she's applying it to is insane. She also says, if you decide on a goal, for example, I'm going to write a novel or I'm going to run a 10K, your subconscious will formulate the likelihood of that happening based on your past experiences. She has little quotes like this. And I'm like, is that scientifically true? It can't be. I mean, maybe it could be, but I wish she had a single fucking source in this book. Or like, I wish she (laughs) tapped into anything else besides her own immediate human experience and feelings. So then she explains that she quit Diet Coke and it actually wasn't that hard to quit for Diet Coke addiction. And it's like, well... I don't know that that's like a severe addiction then. But she's like, if I can stop drinking Diet Coke, you can stop doing anything like eating. (laughs) I know that blowing off a workout a day in afternoon to organize your closet or some previous commitment to yourself doesn't seem like a big deal, but it is. It's a really big deal. Our words have power, but our actions shape our lives. Bitch, shut up. The lie. I'm not good enough. I am a workaholic and I don't say that lightly. The words are heavy. The knowledge makes my heart hurt. She goes, I looked up the definition just now, even though I've been certain of my diagnosis for a couple of years. My online dictionary app describes workaholic as a person who feels compelled to work excessively. Compelled. She puts that in italics. That's a pretty strong word, isn't it? Not really. Not know. really. She hears it and immediately thinks of the exorcist and holy water and a terrified priest. And it's like the power of Christ compels you. Like, are you referencing the thing that eighth graders said to be funny? <laughs> I don't know. And I also feel like the truth is I'm a workaholic. Like what's your greatest strength and your greatest weakness? And my greatest weakness is that I work too hard, too close attention to detail. I care too much. Exactly. Like in our society, we don't actually look down on people who are workaholics. We don't actually look down on people. We say like, oh, what in work ethic? How great. She works so hard. She has such a successful company. That is the most important thing. So again, this is another one of those like non-confessions to be like, I'm going to open up and tell you something that I've only ever said in therapy. I love my job. (laughs) I mean, no one turns into like an internet self-help guru if they don't want to. So then she's like, listen, part of the reason I work so much is simple. I love my job. No, I freaking love my job. And then she's like, I'm so good at my job. It's so fun. And when things are falling apart elsewhere, I would rather be working because it's something I know I'm good at. Yeah. And so she explains that in her childhood, she wanted to stand out. She wanted attention from her parents. And so succeeding was a way to get your parents' attention. And that really stuck to her. Some real... Psych 101 shit. And this is where she talks about how she was such a workaholic that she had Bell's palsy, which is like partial facial paralysis that is triggered by working too much and like stress. Well, in her situation. In her situation. So in her situation, the stress was caused by work. She worked so hard. Her face was partially paralyzed for weeks. And then it happened again later when she was on vacation. I think she said she had like been working two years straight, not a day off. And then she finally took a vacation. She had another Bell's palsy flare up and she was like, but how could this happen on vacation? And her then husband was like, well, this was the only two weeks you've had off. Maybe that's not the break you thought it was. 
And then later in her life, she all of a sudden gets vertigo and nobody can figure out what it is. She says, I went to internists, allergists, ENTs. Nobody could quite figure it out. I ate well. I was healthy. I ran marathons. They all agreed I had vertigo, but didn't know why. So finally, she goes to a homeopathic doctor who she didn't believe in, but says he asked her hours of questions, like two straight hours of questions of what triggered it when it was bad, blah, blah, blah. Turns out it was the worst when she was stressed out. Who could have believed? Who could have believed? Who? (laughs) She says, a physical response to an emotional problem. I didn't even know our bodies did that. Did you really not know our bodies did that? I feel like I only know our bodies do that. Yeah. I think a lot of people know that our bodies do that. But she says she wasn't doing the most fundamental thing a woman needs to do before she can take care of anyone else. Take care of herself. And so she talks about learning how to relax. I pushed myself to rest, to sit and do nothing. It gave me massive anxiety. I started volunteering at the local homeless shelter. I took a hip-hop dance class. It turns out I'm terrible at hip-hop. But she goes, like, I looked for joy. I looked for peace. It's so funny to be like, I sat still and did nothing. I volunteered. (laughs) I sat still. I, like, finally took a deep breath and was like, what other activities can I enthrall myself in? That will help me relax. More activities. She also started drinking a lot as a way to kill time. Learning to rest is an ongoing process. Like any other lifelong behavior, I constantly fight the desire to slip back into the role I've played for so long. I don't even know what that has to do with I'm not good enough. I guess in this situation, she was like, I was actually so good that my body shut down. Yeah. The problem was that it's not that I'm not good enough. It's that I was so good that my body couldn't keep up. My body wasn't good enough. Chapter four, the lie. I'm better than you. I feel the need to confess. I shave my toes. This one made me the angriest out of I totally do. This made me so mad. This was... A deeply upsetting way to start a chapter. It is written like a Seinfeld character being like, no, I'm serious. I shaved my toes. I can't. I'm not even lying to you. And it's like, I didn't think you were. And I literally don't care. None of this would be such an epic admission to make, except for that I once made fun of a girl in freshman year English class for doing the exact same thing. An epic admission. Blarg. She says blarg. I feel like such a jerk even now, 150 years later. Very funny. Hilarious. She's really in her Tina Fey era. Get it? Because it couldn't have been 150 years. She's only 35. So then she says this is the only time in her life that she ever said something mean about somebody. And by the way, it turns out she said it about her behind her back. Like she said to her friend later, like, how gross is it that Tina shaves her toes? Yeah. Meanwhile, we've already talked mad shit about Pam breaking Whole30 in the break room. Like there's more later. I just think for her to be like, this is the one time I've ever passed judgment on another person. And I have repented every day since. It's like, anyway, if you're not running right now, you might as well be dead because you're worthless scum. (laughs) Did you eat pizza today? I fucking hate you for that. And you should hate yourself for that. I don't hate you. I just won't trust you with my children or my life or even my paperclip. <laughs> if you ask me to borrow a paperclip, I would say no, because I can't trust you for anything. So then she goes on to be like, why are we so judgmental? Why do we do it, ladies? Why do we gossip? Why do we rag on each other? Because it's fun, bitch. Yeah. <laughs> so then she goes on to be like, here's another time. A few weeks ago, there was a woman on my plane from L.A. to Chicago. She and her husband were traveling with two boys, the youngest of whom was about four. He was also the worst behaved child I've ever seen. Before we'd even pulled back from the gate, he was screaming. I mean, bloody murder about having to sit in a seat he didn't want to. And then she goes, later, when I went back of the plane to go to the restroom, I saw why he'd finally quieted. He'd been given a big bag of gummy worms to happily eat his way through. Friends, I will be honest with you. I was disgusted. Disgusted. She was repulsed. She said, first of all, as a strict parent, I thought, oh, heck no. All through takeoff, I was thinking about his mom. I was thinking about how she needed to discipline him better, have better boundaries, get support from her spouse. And when I saw she'd rewarded his bad behavior with sugar, keep me near our cross, Lord Jesus. I kept thinking this woman doesn't have a clue. This woman is exhausted. You were so disturbed by this kid screaming on a plane, okay? A a kid screaming on a plane, we all get it, honestly, deeply annoying. 
So she gave him gummy worms to make your experience on this plane better. And now you're disgusted by the gummy worms. Like, I'm not a parent, but I don't think how you parent on a plane is like your grounded parenting. Yeah. There's earth parenting and there's air parenting (laughs) and they're different. And one of them is for the greater need of the plane, which was like for her. It's for everybody. And we don't know how people parent at home. So shut the fuck up. Yeah. I can't imagine her being like... (laughs) I only said one mean thing anyway. Anyway, I saw this four-year-old and he was the worst child I'd ever seen. A soul doomed to hell. I hated this child. What the fuck is wrong with him and his dumb bitch mother? The only thing worse than this evil spawn of Satan child was his idiot fucking mom throwing gummy worms at him. Also, the dad was right there. Not only was it the mom's fault for quieting the child with gummy bears, but it was also the mom's fault for not getting help from the spouse. It wasn't the father's fault for not offering better support. It was the mother's fault for not asking for his help. Yeah, I guess like from Rachel Hollis's perspective, that dad was just like a poor, poor man who was doomed to an evil, horrible family. And Rachel Hollis probably could have helped him. Evil transfers from the egg, not the sperm. Everybody knows this. Yeah, I mean, it sucks to be a man who is trapped in a family that doesn't deserve you. (laughs) Later at Bagley's claim, I saw the family again. The four-year-old was wild. Everyone stared. What is wrong with his mother? I kept thinking, why doesn't she get a handle on him? Then I saw her standing next to the luggage carousel, utterly exhausted. When I really looked at her, I saw she was near tears, looking bewildered and totally overwhelmed. I mean, did you think she was doing it for fun? Did you think she (laughs) she had sicked this child upon the good people of the airport? The only reason she gave him gummy worms was to give him more energy. She was like, ah, they think it was bad at takeoff. Wait till the luggage carousel. (laughs) Of course she was exhausted. It sucks to have a kid screaming next to you for hours. What else did you think? And then Rachel has this come to Jesus moment where she's like, suddenly it dawned on me. I didn't know these people's lives. I don't know anything about this kid. He could have been adopted. That's actually her answer. She's like, what if he's adopted? God, she's such. Okay, so then she gives another example. And like I said, the moral of this chapter being like, you don't know what other people are going through. No one's better than anybody else. Everyone's doing the best they can in life is True, but these examples are all fucking insane. So the next example she gives is about spectating a marathon. Yeah. Her friends are running a half marathon. She's never spectated before. She's always participated. And she's like, I love participating. I love being a part of it. I love running and accomplishing something. But I drove my friends and I was being such a negative Nelly the whole way because I was just like bored. And it's just like, then don't go. You could have not gone. And then she's like, I had to wake up early and then just stand there waiting for them to run. And then she's like, but then something happened. I got to watch the race and it was actually really fun. And it's like, well, I guess you haven't listened to the podcast because we one- love watching a race. I'm brought to tears every year at the New York Marathon. You guys are all invited to my New York Marathon party next year. You could come eat bagels with me. Yeah, we always watch on Bedford and we eat bagels and we drink coffee and we scream our little heads off because if you're not cheering, God, they all have their name. A lot of them put name their name on their chest so you can scream their name and then you scream and they feel supported and they smile and you smile and then everyone's running and there's trombones it's beautiful there's nothing better than a group of people working towards a common goal and other people just supporting them oh my god and can i say if any wormies are running the new york marathon please let us know in advance so we can track your asses and scream our fucking faces off very impressive to wriggle your way through 26.2 miles (laughs) an inchworm one inch at a time baby (laughs) anyway so Although we agree that it is beautiful to watch a race. What are you talking about? You're an adult woman who thought it was a waste of time to support your friends. Yeah. Then why did you go? Like, why are you there then? If this is like the worst experience you've ever fucking had until you realized it actually was fine. I like don't understand how that connects to the mom. I don't understand how it connects to the toes. I don't understand how it connects to anything. Like, what is she talking about? 
I'm not better than you. It turns out you also can run a half marathon. That's what she realized. That yeah. Time. She's like, I thought I was the only one who was capable of anything. And it turns out other people can do stuff too. Like not as good as me, but they still can. <laughs> okay. This is my favorite chapter. Chapter five, the lie. Loving him is enough for me. Okay. So something important about Rachel Hollis is that she married like the first guy she ever went on a single date with. She married the first guy she ever met. Which is a big uh, celebrity memoir book club. No, no. no, no. <laughs> Please, even if you go back to him, ultimately, try a second person just to double check. You must. You must. She yeah. is now, by the way, trying a second person because they did get divorced. Okay. So she was 19 years old. She had dropped out of college because she moved to LA, got an internship at Miramax. They offered her a full-time job. So she dropped out of school to work there. So she met a guy in the lobby at work who was there for a meeting with her boss. And she was like, smoke show, done. Let's do it. So then after flirting, he asks her on a date. They go to an Italian restaurant and she was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm on a date. And then he goes, I hope you're not one of those girls who's afraid to eat on a date. He laughed. It annoyed me. Whoever or whatever kind of girl I was hadn't been determined yet. I didn't like the comparison to anyone. I didn't like the reminder that he wasn't on his very first date too. First of all, it is unrealizable to expect a 27-year-old man to have never been on a date before. That's stupid. Second of all, I feel like the instinct here is right. That is a douchey first sentence. Yes. But then she says, I responded by eating more than half the pizza we were sharing. He talked about himself for two hours straight. I didn't mind. I was fascinated. Ugh. You should mind. Ugh. Okay. If a wormy out there has never been on a date and you go on a date and a man just talks about himself for two hours straight. I've had this happen to me before. Sometimes I don't mention that I have a podcast just to see like when it'll come up. Because if you ask about almost anything in my entire life, it comes up. <laughs> Who's your friend? What are your hobbies? What's your job? How do you pay rent? What did you do today? What did you do yesterday? What are you ever doing in the future? What are you reading right now? What's the last thing you watched? Like it all ties back to this podcast. It's all I fucking do. And so... If it doesn't like I one time went on two dates with someone where it never came up and I was like, well, I probably just it was like a game at that point. That's why I went on a second date. I was just seeing. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the point is red flags. Red flags are flying from every angle. Oh, my God. So then they go on a second date this time for soup. She was dating an older man. Older men eat soups. You guys, if you've ever been on a soup date. Let me know. Was it sexy to watch him purse his lips and slurp? <laughs> Did you like watching people carefully take a spoon to their lips, trying not to drop anything? Blow on it. <laughs> Or did he lap it up like bug? <laughs> did you feel full afterwards or did you feel sloshy in your tummy? There's nothing worse than feeling sloshy down there. I hate going for a long romantic walk when I'm sloshing. Like water in a pot. <laughs> well, it could have been more of like a bisque. Something thicker that doesn't flush. Something that, that curdles in your stomach and fills the expanse with milk. <laughs> Something that it doesn't slosh, it sits heavy, keeps you secure. Let me tell you, as a resident milk lover, milk is not a precoitous drink. <laughs> a clam chowder, perhaps. You gotta have something creamy after lovemaking. When you're in bed looking to cool down, that's when you heat up the chowder. <laughs> anyway, so second day, after listening to him talk about himself for two hours, she thought, let's try this again we'll have soup so then they start dating she's obsessed with him and he like goes to her friend's birthday party and this is a few weeks later and she tells everyone he's her boyfriend and then the next day he's like kind of weird to her and he's like well i'm not your boyfriend and she was like huh and then she goes god bless my tiny ignorant heart he resisted but i was dogged in my pursuit i thought i was mature enough to handle it i went quickly from never having gone on a date to spending every night at his apartment for clarity's sake let me spell it out at that point we weren't having sex but honestly that was the technicality what is the technicality anal <laughs> she was doing anal she was doing the lord's the lord's anal anal for the 
two holes for you, one for Jesus. <laughs> oh my God. So first they were doing all these sleepovers and then she called him her boyfriend and then he was like, no. He like tried to break up with her and she goes, here's the ugly truth. I was a booty call. You weren't a booty call. You guys were dating. I'll give her that. Like, you don't go to someone's friend's birthday party if you're a booty call. You don't go on a soup date with a booty call. It's <laughs> literally the opposite. Also, can I say, for the most part, with a booty call, you boink. Yeah. And they hadn't had sex. If you're hanging out all the time and meeting each other's friends and not having sex, like, that's dating. Good work, Rach. She's talking about how awful the situation was. I guess she was in a situation ship. They were like dating, but not exclusively, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, she goes, as I write these words, I'm crying. Bitch, what? Why are Why? you crying? What are you crying about? Why? Girl, stop crying and wash your face. <laughs> I didn't cry when I wrote the chapter of my brother's death or the pain of my childhood. But this, this flays me. I am so sad for that little girl who didn't know better. I am devastated. That nobody prepared her for life or taught her how to love herself so she wasn't so desperate to get any form of it from someone else. Actually, I think you should have been taught to get it from someone else so you didn't just have to marry this first guy who wouldn't date you. So to quote Clueless, she says, his company moved him to another city. And so in order to keep him, her virginity went from technical to non-existent. It was the last best way I could to think of to hold on to him. This makes me very sad. This is like the line that really breaks my heart. I really feel like actually breaks your heart. If she's going to cry about being a booty call when she wasn't even having sex. The thing that makes me really sad is when people have sex just to appease a man. That's like not how your virginity should be lost. I do think at 19 years old, it's not weird to have sex with your boyfriend. It's not even weird to have sex with a guy you've been doing anal with for a year. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't break my heart, but it does like bum me out when someone has sex because they're trying to like manipulate a man in a certain way. No, 100%. And I do think that that is also like a part of the purity culture that you're like, like having sex is such a high value thing that you're like, I'm putting in all the chips. I'm going all in. I'm trying to make you my boyfriend. And then you lose the hand and then you're just like, fuck, I've lost something. You haven't lost anything. You had sex. That's supposed to be for both of you. Yeah. Ironically, it's like if you hadn't cared so much about it, you probably wouldn't have used it as a desperate last gasp. Yes. Anyway, but then I want to read this next sentence, which confuses me to no end. It didn't work. Two months after he moved away, he flew home long enough to break up with me. Okay, you're not a booty call if somebody moves away and you're still together. Yeah. You're not a booty call if he flies home to break up with you in person. If there is distance between him and the booty (laughs) and you're still talking. If you're more than a phone call away, that's not a booty call by definition. So then she gets dumped and she's so sad. So when he moves away, is she mentioned this in the first time she talked about Bell's palsy and like the stress from her work. Her boyfriend had also moved away and then she says broke up with her when her face was partially paralyzed. She doesn't mention it again in this chapter, but I do think part of the stress that like caused her face to freeze, it wasn't overworking from work. It was like the anxiety and the pressure she put on herself sexually. Yeah. And then she lost her virginity to a man she wasn't married to, which is like really against she was raised by a pastor. And then her face froze and then he broke up with her (laughs) and she's like, I was just sad. It's like, no, your body had like a reaction to this. And then you married him. You may read this chapter and feel anger at the way that man treated me or anger at the position I put myself in, but I didn't see any of it. I had no pride. Listen, I am, as you said, very sorry for her that she lost her virginity, which is something that was very meaningful to her and it was for nothing and it was to try to trap him or whatever. But I also have to say if... It wasn't for her very like religious upbringing. This is just the 
story of every 19 year old I know I don't know a single 19 year old who wasn't in a situation where they liked someone more than they liked them yeah that's all this is is it I mean I guess he like didn't treat you great but at the same time you were dating you were going on dates you were meeting each other's friends he did you the dignity of breaking up with you that's more than most people can say that's these more days. than most people can say these days just the way that she's trying to get the ultimate mileage out of being like listen i've been in a horrible situation too like i've been in a bad relationship i did turn it around and married him but maybe that's me maybe i'm like yeah. normalizing it but i do think in the grand scheme of things this is hardly the worst of it hardly the worst of it i will say the reason i feel sad about it is because this is like a book of advice And I do think that this is treacherous advice and a horrible perspective and she is peddling it as normal and that she's right and best. So it makes me sad to think, first of all, that that was her perspective ever because it sucks. And then second of all, that she's selling it to people now and probably other people who are from similar backgrounds will read this and be like, oh, okay, that's it. You like find one man, fuck him into staying with you and then you like can never go look for someone else because now you've lost your virginity to him and he owns you. So you have to just figure it out and make it work. It's like the Leandra thing too, where it's like, listen, if he doesn't want you the first time, stick around for a couple of years and just keep begging because eventually his parents will be like, hey, when are you going to settle down? And he'll be like, "Ugh, I guess that girl's been trying for a while. I'll go with her. Sometime afterwards, he calls her to check in on see how he's doing, which again, not booty call behavior, but okay. Yeah. And she's like, don't ever call me again. And this literally changes everything the minute it sounds like she's the lick of pride in her voice he drives to her front door knocks on it and begs her to take him back and she goes I remember everything in our relationship as either before or after this moment our love story was being reborn and it is a love story our relationship is the greatest gift in my life Dave is my best friend first real caretaker I ever had and I've had the honor of watching him grow from that guy into a wonderful husband father and friend try a second man And then she's like, listen, don't just stay with your awful boyfriend just because it worked out for me. But it did work out for me. But don't assume it'll work out for you. That's literally the next page. And then she goes, I hope that those of you who've lived through something similar and carry guilt about it long after it's over will learn that you are not the only one. Okay, can I say something? And maybe this is judgmental. It is judgmental. I'm judgmental. Whatever. I do think if at 19 years old, you liked a guy more than he liked you back. And you spent a year like kind of dating, kind of hooking up. And it kind of amounted to nothing. And then at 35, you have a husband and four kids and a booming business. Don't think you should still be feeling guilty about what you did at 19. I don't think you should have ever felt guilty. I don't think you should have ever felt guilty. But I definitely don't think you should be actively crying about it when you think about it. Yeah. Please, for the love of God, do not ever cry over some situationship gone wrong at 19 when you are like more than moved on and settled in your life. You should not be crying over it. Well, do you know what the problem is, is that then she moved on with that same guy. So she still thinks about it because the origins of her love story are this story of her letting herself be a doormat for someone, which is sad. And it happens to a lot of people. It's happened to me. It's happened to you. Like we've all been obsessed with a guy who like didn't like us that much back. But then or even not liked a guy who still treated us like shit. And then we're like, fuck, what happened here? (laughs) The reason you try a second man is because then you can learn those lessons from that first situation that didn't go well or like not even first situation. It can happen for your entire life as things like this. Then you move on to someone else where you can start fresh and take those lessons from the previous relationship and apply them new, like apply self-confidence and whatever. And then have a new love story with someone who treats you well the whole time because you ask for what you deserve. That's why you do it. That way, when you look back at the beginning of your relationship, you don't cry. (laughs) Chapter six, the lie. No is the final answer. So then she talks about how she got on 30 under 30. And so people constantly ask her to give college lectures. 
And she goes, every time I go, they ask the same question, which is, hi, Rachel. They always begin because apparently we call adults by their first names now. Like we're a bunch of hippies. Can you tell us the secret of your success? We are a bunch of hippies. Who the fuck are you calling Miss Hollis? I have to say, Mrs. if you're Hollis. 30 under 30, that means at oldest you're 29. If you're going to these college kids, they're 20, 21, 22. They are adults. If I am 29. I cannot imagine a single person down to the age of baby. I have to say <laughs> down to zero newborn. I asked bug to call you Miss Parker. And that makes me <laughs> uncomfortable because I myself am a baby, but also just the idea that like you would ask a 22 year old to call you by your last name, like Goofy. grow up. You're not an adult. You don't like deserve the utmost respect from these students. You're not like a visiting nuclear scientist. You're a visiting lifestyle blogger. Who's 29. <laughs> You're in your 20s talking to other people in their 20s and you're like, show some fucking respect. I own your ass. No. For what? Shut up, bitch. Your PR company got you on a list. I'm sorry. I ain't never going to respect no listicle, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so she talks about how the way she built her career was by not taking no as a final answer. And the example she gives is that when she was writing her first books, she had been connected with a literary agent because of her blog. And then she was like, I have some ideas for some fiction I would like to write. So she wrote this book about like a party planner to the stars, which is how she got her start. She was a party planner to the stars. And then it wasn't sexy. So all of the publishers that the literary agent was introducing her to were like, this is such a fun book. Make the main character fuck, though. Because she did say this was the time when Fifty Shades of Grey was going crazy. And they were like, if it doesn't have sex, nobody will buy it instead of adding sex she just cried and cried and cried she would not give it up for this relationship <laughs> she self-publishes it's very successful a company ends up buying the rights to the book and then doing a publishing run of it buying two more it becomes a series she's like thank god i didn't take no as a final answer thank god i didn't compromise my values for these publishers it all worked out swimmingly and then she instead of ending it there which I actually do think that that's a good example. I mean, I feel like that's kind of our life story. Like nobody yeah. wanted us. I mean, just kept forcing ourselves on the public. <laughs> Instead of stopping there at this example that actually is rather inspiring, she gives more examples. One of them being on January 3rd, 1870, ground was broken for the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge. The project took 10 years. And during that time, the lives of so many men on the building crew were lost. But you guys, the Brooklyn Bridge still stands as a symbol of New York. And 135 years later, it brings 43 million cars to and from Manhattan every single year. Don't you get it? Nothing that lasts is accomplished quickly. <laughs> I don't know that your self-published book is the same as the Brooklyn Bridge. I love that you're like, people should have died for my book. Yeah. And if they had, it would have been worth it. And if people had died, I would have kept going because you don't take no death as a final answer. I just don't think that your book is a bridge. It's very different. I also <laughs> have to quote my favorite quote from this chapter, which is she's like, listen, what if life isn't happening to you? What if none of it is happening to you? What if it, all of it is happening for you? It's all about perception, you guys. Perception means we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. Take a burning house. <laughs> <laughs> to a fireman, a burning house is a job to do. Maybe even his life's work or mission. For an arsonist, a burning house is something <laughs> exciting and good. What if it's your house? What if it's your family who's standing outside watching every earthly position you own burning up? That burning house becomes something else entirely. Can you imagine going <laughs> to a family whose house just burnt down because of arson being like, you had a bad day, but the arsonist had a good day. Think about that. <laughs> I just love all the things to take different perspectives on. I feel like in most cases, a burning house is bad. I don't think we should look at criminals as like the outliers. They'd be like, listen, 
a murder a murder might be bad but what if you were the murderer then it is a successful job it's revenge well done (laughs) everything is how you look at it god she says do you hear me sister whether you want to lose weight or write a book or be on tv or travel the world on a speaking tour you are the steward of your own dreams i'm not done with the burning house (laughs) because here's the other flaw in her simile there is that you can't change who you are in that perspective. If it is your house burning down, that is happening to you. There's no way to turn around and be like, I lit the fire. I am the arsonist now. Do you know what I mean? Well, I think that there are some ways to change perspective. You could have started as the arsonist, (laughs) lighting fires and having a really fun day and then been like, fuck, that is my house though. And now my house has burnt down and I'm sad. Late to your job as the firefighter. But do you know what I mean? Like, that's not really a glass half full, half empty. That's not a choice you can make about whether or not it's your house. Like, Like, who are you on that day? There's a mortgage. (laughs) It's been pre-decided. Anyway. Sorry. So what else did you want to say? Oh, I just, I liked that steward of your own dreams comparing losing weight or traveling the world or being on a speaking tour. All equally noble and important (laughs) goals. Being on TV, own your own home. I mean... I will say after that arson situation, I don't know that it's ever worth it to own your own. Because <laughs> you could at any minute become an arsonist. <laughs> trying to be an optimist, you might become an arsonist. Better to spend your time and money trying to lose weight. <laughs> the lie. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Every time I think I have my favorite chapter, there's the next chapter. This is a really good chapter, you guys. What's the lie? I'm bad at sex. Ugh. Can I say that was probably a truth? <laughs> <laughs> but here's why she's bad at sex. It's not because she doesn't ride good dick. Okay, it's because she and her husband weren't having sex often. So she starts yeah. this chapter being like, yeah, I'm going there. So that lady in Texas who just passed out, screw her. We keep going. She's like, I'm going to normalize talking about sex. And if you're uncomfortable, you can go fuck yourself. Sex is crazy. Sex is something I do. I'm not a virgin. I'm a mother of three and I have sex with my husband. Do you hear me, Carol? And it's like, I don't know, man, you're unnormalizing it. Like when you started this chapter, everyone was like, okay, this is a chapter about sex. And now she's like, this is crazy. What I'm about to say is fucking insane. I will say this weekend, I heard a grown woman call her vagina a vahihi. And I I was like, we have to work. We have to do better. So then she goes on to be like, I'm even gonna talk about UTIs. And I'm like, good, great. And she goes, Here's what you need to know and here's what you should consider. And also the first few times you have sex, you should pee afterwards so you don't get a UTI. Forever. Don't, not the first few times. It's a life sentence. <laughs> you have to stay peeing after sex. We literally just broke a huge <laughs> Oh my God, I'm sorry. Rachel Hollis has made us like pee people. <laughs> She's like made us our own worst enemies. She has somehow made us a worse version of ourselves. <laughs> Rachel Hollis is piss kink and we are the victims. <laughs> I didn't consent to talking about pee so much, but she made me. Oh, my God. The picture of her on the cover is her just drenched in a fire hose, a bright yellow fire hose. She's a pee girl, which like no shame. But like, don't drag me into this. I didn't want to. I don't want to be a part of it. So then she goes on to talk about her sex life with Dave Hollis, her husband and only sex partner up till 2020 when she broke up with him and presumably has had sex since. The problem was not that she was bad at sex. She says in the beginning of their relationship, the sex was awesome. They did it all the time. 
first she says when they got married, they had sex all the time. And then they stopped having sex so much. Five years into our marriage, our sex life was nearly non-existent. By comparison, we'll celebrate our 14th wedding anniversary this year. And now our sex life is a stuff of legends. No, seriously. We do it way more than any married couple you know. At least more often than most married couples with four kids and two full-time jobs. We have sex, not out of obligation, but because it's really good. Because when it's really good, why wouldn't you go at it like a couple of howler monkeys? What is a howler monkey? And why are you trying to fuck more than them? Is that your piss thing? Howler monkeys don't have jobs. I'm obsessed. This is so girl who's never had sex being like, uh, yeah, we have sex. How much sex do you have? Well, we have more sex than that. Who's mm-hmm. se- who, who do you know that has the most sex? Well, we have more sex than that. We have more sex than probably anybody. We have so much sex and it's fun sex. Sex that is good. So good. I cummed myself. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley, you've gone too far. You're fired. That's fair. Anyway, I do feel like to be like, listen, I'm just like you. Sometimes sex isn't perfect, but I'm not like you. And that sex actually is perfect. So everything about Rachel Hollis is like a few years ago, this wasn't perfect in my life. But then I figured it out. And now it is. So now I have sex like Howler Monkeys, an animal that I made up because no regular animal in the animal kingdom has sex as much as me. I think there is such thing as a Howler Monkey. They're like howling. That's a wolf, Claire. (laughs) wolves aren't real either they're from twilight (laughs) having sex like a bunch of vampires right let's make stuff up (laughs) okay so here's the seven things that helped her because basically it came to the point where she's like we never have sex and he's like well i'm tired of getting turned down and she's like i never turn you down he's like yeah but you never like having sex with me and she's like so (laughs) and he's like i don't like having sex with like Someone who obviously doesn't want to be here. And she's like, that had never considered. Dave Hollis, feminist icon. (laughs) So here are the seven things that helped her like sex. One, I redefined sex in my own mind. For the longest time, sex symbolized a lot of things. So I decided to change what I thought sex was. This might not be what sex is for you, your friends, the Holy Ghost. But going forward, I decided that sex was supposed to be a fun experience that would always be more compelling than whatever else I was doing. Up until that point, I was continuously weighing sex against other things. And it was playing second fiddle. Okay, can I say something? I just don't understand how you could suddenly be like, I decided sex was fun, and that was true for me now. I know being on my phone I is guess fun. I do think that overall, if you come from a religious upbringing where sex is evil, you do have to like do mental work and like therapy to get past the place where sex is like bad and it becomes fun. Having sex with your husband is like when your house burns down. <laughs> <laughs> but it depends on what perspective you come from. Are you the arsonist or the fireman? Number two is I figured out how sex could be an earth-shattering experience. She has an orgasm. It turns out they had never actually stopped to see what she liked in bed. So after 14 years of marriage, they were like, whoa, 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 Rachel. Sex is for men and women. She read Hebrews 13.4, which is like a Christian thing where she's like, God said he wants you to have sex with your husband. God is a pervert. There's no wrong way to enjoy sex with your husband. And then she goes, except for pornography. That is an extremely damaging thing to consume, both for the consumer and the people being used as objects for your lust. Shut up. And then she says that you should dirty talk and wear lingerie and do like sexy stuff. And it's like, where did you learn about that? If not from porn, (laughs) I embrace my body, which I think relatable. Your body changes after you have children. You're still sexy. Learn to love yourself. I committed to my orgasm. And she said, so I decided years ago that I would never, and I mean ever, have sex again that didn't include an orgasm for me. When I told Dave this plan, he agreed it was the greatest idea I'd ever come up with. Okay, I have a really hot, controversial take. Well, you know that I'm completely on the same page as this take, so tell it to the people, not me. Okay, but you are in the room, so just for, like, eye line purposes, I am going to say it to you. Okay. (laughs) I 
am not for the whole like feminist revolution of people being like, you should have an orgasm every time you have sex. I think that that's a lot of pressure to put on women and honestly, both genders. I don't think there's anybody who's ever came every single time they have sex. Like that's a lot of pressure to put on sex. Yeah. I actually think that in the same way that we've talked about how like instead of making women more like men at work, men should be more like women like use exclamation points and a kind tone yeah and like sometimes we could just be there for the journey and not the destination yeah and so what I mean by that is like instead of being like women should come every time maybe it's like men don't need to come every time we all come less (laughs) that's our utopia I do think that women sometimes it's hard sometimes in your brain you're like hung up on something else like you're just not going to come every time and we need to accept that we also need to accept that men don't come every time like when you're having sex with a dude and they don't come it feels like an affront to your being yeah And like sometimes they just don't and that's okay. And I think that we need to accept that sex can be fun even if there's not always an orgasm at the end. Yeah. And like if you never come, then that's bad. Yes. Like you should check in with your partner. But it's like the idea that you haven't succeeded at sex. Like put this to put a finish line on it is hard. To put this like hard objective on it. I don't know. You can just enjoy yourself. It's okay. Ladies, if you're not coming every single time, you're not a feminist failure. Yeah. If the man or the person that you're with isn't doing things for your pleasure that's a problem like if it's all their thing that's bad but you don't have to come every time sometimes you just can't and that's okay too anyway so then she figured out what turns her on and we committed to having sex every day for a month Years ago, at the outset of changing up our sex lives, Dave and I initiated something we called Sexy September. We vowed to have sex every day during the month of September. No excuses. God, everything with her is such a fucking exhausting Excel spreadsheet list. Like, I really do think she's a Google Doc for, like, horniness. It's so, I mean, I will say, if you are having trouble with your sex life, being like, let's put a rule on it. Let's add rules (laughs) to sex. Every sex should have a game plan. I mean, obviously it worked for them for the time being, but I'm just like, everything about you is so intense. And the idea that this is like a one-stop shop for how everyone should be living their lives. Like, how could anyone? Yeah. How could anyone? Well, that's the point is that her life is unrealistic and bizarre. And so you can never be Rachel Hollis. And Rachel Hollis wasn't Rachel Hollis. That's the big punchline to this entire book is that all of this shit was not true. All of her successful sex life and how her and her husband are the happiest of any couple you've ever met in your life. Clearly, they were so happy they went and found new people. (laughs) Clearly, they were so happy that they, like, forced each other into, like, a sex game that ended in divorce. (laughs) The lie, I don't know how to be a mom. So she talks about how she didn't like being pregnant, which is, like, God bless. I don't think I'm going to like it. Yeah. I like being kind of, like, nimble, light on my feet. You know me. I'm always busting into parkour, so I think pregnancy (laughs) is going to be hard on me. You actually are often busting into parkour. Like, more often than, I think, the usual person. (laughs) So, listen, I get it. It's not for everybody. I don't like having a rumbly tummy. That's why no soup dates. That's why I never go on a soup date. Anyway, so she talks about she doesn't like being pregnant, which is fair. Then she has the baby, and she hates her husband I remember once when Jackson was about a month and a half old looking at Dave and sincerely believing I hated him like to the pit of my soul hated him she screamed at him on my wedding day I never thought I could hate you as much as I hate you right now that's kind of funny that is funny I mean god bless but then she goes on and one thing about Rachel Hollis is she almost takes like so much accountability that it doesn't even work anymore she's like it was not my best moment but luckily for me relationships are full of opportunities for grace and it's like you had to be forgiven what about Dave for like not being a helpful father the first six weeks of your newborn's life you need help so it's okay to be mad at your husband for being a fucking dud then she has a really honest section about early motherhood where she talks about 
not feeling connected to her children. She says that she was so hung up in what things looked like that she wasn't really taking time to bond with her child for her first two pregnancies. And I think that that's really honest. And I wonder how common this is in the current state of our world where everything is so online and everything is about like the presentation and the perception of a perfect family life. Like do people have these problems where they're like, oh, the birth photos aren't cute enough. So I like feel sad about that. And you're not like taking the time to feel happy about having had a baby or like I can't sit and cuddle my baby because like dishes have to be done. Yeah. So basically she's like, listen, when you have a newborn, there's two things that are important. And it's one, take care of the baby, take care of yourself. Everything else will still be there when you come back. And I think that that's God bless. And the next chapter is also I'm not a good mom. What was the last one? I don't know how to be a mom. I'm not a good mom. And this one's about not being a good mom as they're growing up. So it's about not being there at school for like PTA mom shit. She tells a story that me and Ashley kind of think is a lie. She's talking to her seven-year-old son and her seven-year-old son says, you know what you need? One of those necklaces with our initials on them. You know, the ones with the letters for each kid's name. And I said, yes, I know those necklaces. You should get one of those. All the moms at school have one. You need to go get one. And she goes, okay, but why do I need to get one? And then he smiled. So you can finally be like all the other moms. Do you know why I think maybe she didn't have one? Why? Maybe she was in credit card debt. Oh, no. (laughs) How could you check to see if you're in credit card debt? If you are paying down old credit card debt, it can be a mountain to climb. It can be a lot to deal with. It can be very stressful when you look at it all out in front of you on so many different cards. Sometimes you're planning for a big payment and you knew it was coming, but then to pay it off just still feels like an enormous hurdle you have to jump. Sometimes things come out of nowhere. Sometimes there are accidents. Sometimes an arsonist burns down your house and you've got a lot to deal with. And sometimes debt can pile up and you just don't see it there until it's too late. And paying it down can be so deeply stressful, especially when you're keeping track of multiple payments from different platforms. So consolidating them can take so much of the stress out of paying down this debt. And Credit Karma uses credit data to find loan offers that are personalized to you to consolidate your debt into one payment every single month. With Credit Karma, they'll show you your chances of approval so that you can choose between loan offers that you're most likely to get approved for and you can apply with confidence. Comparing loan offers with Credit Karma is completely free. It will not affect your credit score and it could save you so much money. With Credit Karma, you can apply with more confidence today. If you're ready to apply, head to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to see personalized offers. That's creditkarma.com slash loan offers to find the loan for you. That's creditkarma.com slash loan offers. And Credit Karma will never lie to you, just like we think Rachel Hollis is lying to us. Here's why I think she's lying. The idea that Rachel Hollis wouldn't have a monogram necklace of her kids' initials, I don't know that much about her, but it feels like she would have had a company that made them. It feels like she would have peddled name necklaces, sent other moms into debt. A lot of targeted Instagram ads. I also don't believe that a seven-year-old is like that acutely aware of, of jewelry that the other moms are wearing. I don't know. I mean, pipe in. Pipe in, ladies with children, if that feels like something your seven-year-old might say to you. The part that feels like a truth is so you can be like all the other moms. It doesn't feel like that was related to a necklace. It feels like something else happened that day that stressed her out, but it was an actual truth that she doesn't want to admit to. So the rest of this chapter is about her trying her hardest to show up. She can't really be there full-time like these other moms who don't have 
full-time jobs. She can't just be at school whenever they need her, but she tries her best to show up for a story time, for a bake sale, for a field trip, like whenever she can for just a little bit, even though she's always running out to a meeting or something else. She also talks about all the things that's hard to remember. She goes, I'd likely forget every single one of like these field trips and the special lunches and crazy hair day. And she goes, and I am one of the most organized people I've ever met. And even with all of my planning, I'm still constantly forgetting things. I forget things. And if I forget things, then you forget things because nobody nobody is more organized than me. I'm forgetting things. I know you're forgetting even more things. And so basically she's mad about not getting credit for showing up where she can show up. Like these other moms who are there all the time aren't giving her props for showing up sometimes. Or her kids. She's like, to my son, yeah. me coming and spending a day helping do XYZ isn't the same as dropping them off every day. Right. Everything has a payoff. So then she decides she just doesn't care. She says, what if we all went into the next school year with the simple intention of just gracefully doing our best? Let's try our darndest to turn in every slip on time and remember every wacky hair Wednesday, all the while knowing that we're inevitably going to forget something, be too busy to volunteer, or fail to compete with Liam's mom and her non-GMO custom gingerbread kits for every member of the class. Why does she need to take a swipe at the people who do show up for their kids? It's funny because she's like, listen, the stay-at-home moms are so judgmental of me. And instead of being like, I wish we could all just understand that we're all the same, she's like, which is silly because I'm better than them. She's like, listen, these smug bitches who are all cunty about showing up for their kids in day-to-day life are judgmental of me, someone who has a business of making them feel bad on the internet. Years ago, I had to make a choice. Either I had to embrace being a working mom and be wholly proud of what I was doing, or I had to quit and commit to being a stay-at-home mom. Why? I don't know. Why? I guess like this whole like, I'm so intense. Either way, I was going to be all in one way or the other. I don't know. I think you can say I work and I'm a mother and still have like pangs of like, sometimes it sucks. But the other way, it would still suck the other. Like, I don't know. Like this idea that mind over matter, you're never going to have regret. You're never going to feel bad. Every day is going to be a perfect day. I'm all for saying I'm just going to do less. You stick to what you can do. They'll stick to what they can do. Everyone try your best for your kids. Like, good. I feel like this chapter is so funny because of one, the irony of her being like, how dare they say that home moms judge me? I judge them. <laughs> and two, or there's this underlying theme of being like, we can't compare ourselves to the Pinterest moms who bring in a perfect batch of cupcakes every single Monday for somebody's birthday. And I'm like, aren't you the Pinterest mom? Like you're literally a, you're the one creating Pinterest graphics that these moms then click on to create cupcakes that make you feel inferior because you are the lifestyle blogger. You invented the standard of aesthetic mothership that you like cannot live up to and are now feeling guilty about. Hoisted by her own petard, as we <laughs> like to say here at CNBC. Anyway, so the next chapter is about aging and how people feel like they should be further along by a certain point. And she's like, listen, everyone's life works out differently. You can't get caught up in the timing of things. For me, I thought that I'd have babies and get married a little bit later. That happened a lot sooner. Whereas my career, I wasn't successful until later. And it's just like at 28 later than what? Like you were 30 under 30. You thought you'd be 30 under 25. She's like, everybody's life goes at their own pace. Mine went faster. Yours is probably going slower. And that's okay too. And then she has another chapter called The Lie. Other people's kids are so much cleaner, better organized, and more polite. This is like the exact same thing is that you have to do the best you can, blah, blah, blah. Her whole thing is that, listen, you have to accept the chaos and lean into it. Interestingly enough, the people I know who do this the best are the ones whose lives are the most chaotic of all. They're my friends whose husbands are serving overseas. They're the women I know who are raising special needs children. They're the single mamas working three jobs. I believe it's because they learned a long time ago that there is beauty in the chaos as well as freedom and not trying to fight against the tide. Did you do that looking at a single mom working three jobs and being like, your life is so messy. I don't know how you do it. Brava, sister. 
She must have decided not that she has to just keep going to provide the best life possible for her child, but she must have actually decided to find beauty in the chaos that is her messy bitch life. She loves living la vida loca. I couldn't, but good for you, girl. Crazy. Your life is so crazy. I couldn't deal with it. But I think it's so cool for you. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't have picked it, but I like that you like it. (laughs) Anyway, so then we have another chapter, The Lie, I Need to Make Myself Smaller. And this is where she realizes that not only was she overachieving for her parents, but her dad also made her feel like she needed to take up less space. And she thought that she needed to make herself small, minimize her accomplishments. She says, I cannot continue to live as half myself simply because it's hard for others to handle all of me. I mean, good. Good lesson. I think that her saying it is annoying, but... She's like, when I go to dinner parties, I'm no longer just going to say I have a blog. I'm going to explain to them that I have a lifestyle empire. Likeable. That's what people love. They love sitting down to a dinner party next to a stranger and getting a resume. Anyway, the next chapter, The Lie, I'm going to marry Matt Damon. And this is where she talks about... I honestly don't even know. Well, you know what's funny about this chapter? A couple of these chapters do start to be repeats. She's like... It's hard to be a mom. It's hard to be a mom again. It's guess what? Still hard. And then this harkens back to that chapter where people are like, what's so special about you? You know how those awful college kids were just like, what's your special thing? Yeah. And at that point it was never take no for an answer. This one is that she has a more vivid imagination than anybody else. So the whole point of this chapter is she's like, I understand that it could have been any of us, but it was me. And yeah. so let's take time to think, why me? What makes me better than you? Because in many ways we're the same, but clearly in some in tangible way, I am better. And that's proven by my success. So she thinks it's because her whole life she's had these hyper fixations. Like she wanted a Louis Vuitton bag and she worked and bought it nine years later. And then she wanted to marry Matt Damon. So she got a job at Miramax because they produced Goodwill Hunting. And so she's like, that was the studio he worked with. And then she works at Miramax and does meet Matt Damon. They don't get married, though. And then she's like, that's why I'm able to do marathons. I'm not that athletic, but it's mind over matter. Because don't forget, all roads lead back to staying fit and trim and skinny. More important than being a wife, a mother, an empress of a lifestyle blog. You should be skinny. Anyway, so then she says, the lie, I'm a terrible writer. And this is about her not listening to the haters. Someone else's opinion of me is not my business. She gets a negative review on Goodreads and like spirals out of control about it. Her way of fixing it is being like, God loves me. Her answer to everything is like, try harder. And then if she doesn't have an answer, she's like... God loves God, though. God loves you just the way you are. Unless, of course, the way you are is somebody who doesn't like a diet. Okay, so then we get to actual chapters again. The lie. I will never get past this. And this is a chapter about her brother's suicide and how it's impacted her ever since. She talks about how it really pushed her forward throughout the rest of her life. Even as a teenager, I used to think, you can do this, Rachel. You can do anything. Think of what you lived through already. So because she went through something so hard, she was able, instead of letting it hold her back and say like I can't move forward one more day she was able to say all right you've been through something really hard now you can get through this and she's like maybe you don't like that about me but she goes what's the alternative we live through something crappy and that's it we're done for we allow all the hard ugliest parts of our lives to color everything else you cannot ignore your pain you cannot ever leave it behind completely the only thing you can do is find a way to embrace the good that came out of it even if it takes you years to discover what that is then we get to a really complicated chapter the lie I can't tell the truth This is like one of those things where I kind of wish I did know more about her going in because I feel like this is a chapter that she had to write to cop to a big question mark that everybody has. Okay, so this is about her trying to adopt a child. Her and her husband had had their sights set on adoption. They narrowed it down to Ethiopia because literally, she says in this book, they chose international adoption because they didn't want the parents to be able to come back for their kids. 
<sighs> I would not say that out loud personally. That feels like a really bad thing to think. There's a book called My Name is Why by I think Lem Issey. I don't actually know how to pronounce it. So I'm sorry if I just butchered it. But I really recommend reading it if you are interested in the history of international adoption and essentially stealing babies. They did that to him. His mother was a pregnant single young woman who was brought to the United Kingdom to have her baby. Then she went back home and they were like, all right, you can come back for your kid. And then they just made it impossible. There is like a lot of really dangerous and horrifying history of white people stealing babies. Which is what she sought out to accomplish. And then, of course, she wasn't able to adopt a baby from Ethiopia because I guess Ethiopia agrees that that's like a bad thing. And so Ethiopia shut down their international adoption process. Yes. As they had reached like the height of the process. So she, they'd been going through it for years. And then Ethiopia was like, oh, no, no, no. We've actually decided not to do this anymore. And every single time you start an adoption process, like they're all independent from each other. It's not like the paperwork you did for Ethiopia can transfer to any other country. So then she decides to adopt through the LA foster care system and she gets a baby. And then a few weeks later, they call and they're like, can you take our older sister? And she feels a little bit duped. And she's like, it turns out the baby had medical issues that she didn't know about. She doesn't have them for that long. It was a difficult situation. Then the L.A. foster care system calls and is like, hey, we have two newborn twin babies up for adoption. You have 30 minutes to decide if you want them. So they decide, yes, let's do it. They go. They get these two newborn twin babies. They bring them home. It's an exhausting time. Then it turns out that in the previous situation with that newborn and the older sister, an accusation had been made against them that they were abusive. So now with these two newborn babies and their three biological babies, they're under investigation. She says it was a really traumatic process. She says she lost a ton of weight. It was very scary. And they were just constantly having to prove that they were perfect parents which of course they are, you know, Rachel Hollis, a perfect mother. So she was like, I can't believe anyone called it into question. Her lesson is pretty much that the LA foster system is fucked up. And because they chose to interact with the system, they opened themselves up to accusation and trauma. Bad things happen to good people. Yeah. So then afterwards, after six months of having these two little newborn girls, it turns out that they actually should not have been up for adoption. What they needed was a foster care parent. They had been left at the hospital by their mother, but their biological father did in fact want to raise them. So after six weeks. Yeah, six weeks, not six months, right? Six weeks after they had taken them into their home. The father came to collect them. And it turns out they never should have been eligible for the adoption. And if the Hollises had chosen to do so, and this is not an indictment on the Hollises, it's an indictment on like the system because the Hollises obviously were like, of course, these are your babies. And if you want them, you can have them. They could have fought him and kept the babies, even though there was fully a biological parent who wanted to raise those children. Yeah. And this man would have had to like prove himself as a fit parent probably dozens and dozens of times and maybe for the rest of his life. Yeah, it turns out he had always wanted them. So then they decide to go into independent adoption because opening themselves up to the foster and foster to adopt systems within America had opened them up to accusations and they were like, "Ugh, this is just too much drama. So they decided to go into independent where expectant mothers choose the person that they want to adopt their child and they end up getting a daughter this way and it's beautiful and she says all roads lead to this girl we're so happy, blah, blah, blah. So then the lie, I am defined by my weight. So then she talks about divorce. She goes, when people talk about divorces, they use words like irreconcilable or messy. But those words are too light, too easy for the destruction of a family. Divorce is a book falling onto a house made of Legos. That's a horrible metaphor. 
So she explains how divorce is the worst thing that could ever happen to you. And if you go through it, you suck. And it destroys everybody in its path. And the way it destroyed her is that when her parents were going through a divorce, she had her first experience with binge eating. So divorce led her to binge eating. And this is where she gets into what I would call one of the most shocking pages I've ever read in my life. So she talks about dealing with binge eating. At one point, she gets fully addicted to diet pills. And then, you know, she starts running her marathons. But then when she has her kids, her body changes a lot and she's not comfortable with it. So then she says, I think this is the part in the typical inspirational and motivational book where the author would tell you that a journey of self-discovery and a lot of therapy helped her learn that weight did not define her. This is where I should tell you that I am worthy and loved as I am. This is absolutely true, but that's not where I'm headed with this chapter. That isn't the kind of book I want to write. Here's where I can tell you truthfully about diet and exercise and weight and what it means in my life. Who you are today is incredible. You have so many wonderful qualities to offer the world and they are uniquely yours. I believe your creator delights in the intricacies of you and he is filled with joy when you live out your potential. I also believe that humans were not made to be out of shape and severely overweight. Bitch, what? This is one of the most shocking chapters I've ever read. I can't believe that it took her until now to get canceled. I can't believe she put this in print and everyone was like, damn right. She says, she goes, I already know what kind of emails I'll get. The list of reasons why you or someone you know is justifiably obese, the trauma you've lived through. In some cases, food is your coping mechanism. Or maybe I'll hear the opposite. Maybe you have an eating disorder like anorexia. You're thin but totally unhealthy. Or maybe you drink every single day because you're a single parent or you walk through a hard season. All of these things are justifiable. All of these are valid reasons to negate caring for yourself for a time. Childhood trauma is not a life sentence. Extreme emotional pain doesn't guarantee emotional pain for the rest of your life. I know this is true because I'm a living, breathing, flourishing example of someone who chooses to rise above the trauma of her past. Okay, I'm not going to negate her trauma. I'm not going to say she hasn't been through anything. But to be like, listen, I had hard things happen to me and I still managed to be skinny is the craziest thing I've ever heard. It's one thing to be like, and I still managed to come out optimistic or like loving or kind, but she's, she literally literally says, says, I've been through some shit and I remained thin. Do you think I'd so easily share the story of that day with the Oreos? If I hadn't done everything, my power to step out of that shadow. Do you think I magically figured out how to lose weight after a lifetime of living off of cheese and gravy? No, I had to work. I had to study and go to therapy. The truth is, it's the same now as it's always been. If the calories you consume in a day are fewer than the calories you burn off at night, you will lose weight. The end. Please, please stop making excuses for the wise. Please stop telling yourself that you deserve this life as if like living in a larger body is a sentence. I mean, that is the way society like that's the problem is that people act this way and believe this. This chapter keeps almost veering into like, all right, fair enough. At one point, she's like, listen, there's no reason you can't be drinking water every day. Like, like you shouldn't be feeling pain every day. Like your body shouldn't be painful to you because you're not stretching and stuff. And I'm like, fair enough. Like, yeah. But then she really is like. And listen, at the end of the day, is calories in, calories out. God, she is an insane person. I mean, I'm not saying that these are like insane things to believe. I'm saying that these are like things that I myself have had to like actively not believe. And so I do think that to put them in print like that as like an absolute truth, being like, I am a motivational speaker. She literally is. People pay money to have her tell them that they're living their life right. And she's saying such damaging things like, Throughout this book are so many things that could actively and probably actively have sent people into more severe eating disorders. The lie. I need a drink. So in this chapter, she gets 
into how when she was a mother, she started drinking. Like after she had her first couple of kids, she used to be judgmental about drinking. She talks about a time they went out on a double date. And as they drove home, they said, did you hear how much wine she says she drinks? That's crazy. Also, can you believe being like, can you hear how much wine she says she drinks? Like she wasn't even drinking that much wine in front of you. It was just like a mom being like, I love wine. That's a colloquialism. So then she's talking about how much she like started to like a glass of wine at the end of the day. I'm trying to remember the moment I realized how unhealthy all of this was for me. And I don't have a clear defining instant in my mind. I only recall that one day I suddenly caught myself saying I need a glass of wine. As a writer, I pay a lot of attention to the words. In this instance, on this random day, I caught the word need. And then she talks about how she would drink wine at the end of every day. Then when her life got more stressful, when they were under investigation because of the foster system, she says wine, wine was long gone. Wine wouldn't even touch the level of exhaustion and fear and overwhelm we were feeling. Vodka was my co-pilot and I was deeply grateful for its presence in my life. And then she also is like, at night when no one is looking, you drink. And when it gets really bad, you take a Xanax too. I mean, she spent an entire chapter being like, I was so unfairly victimized by the foster system. All I was doing was raising five children under five and ending my nights with vodka and Zans. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got a little blackout at night. I deserved it. (laughs) I will say she is being very judgmental of parents who drink and I am very for parents who drink. I think that that's very okay to be like, yeah, just because I'm a parent doesn't mean I'm dead. But to be taking vodka and Xanax together... With newborns. As like your nightly routine. I do think that that's extreme (laughs) and possibly dangerous. So she stopped drinking. She just stopped. And you can just stop too. Have you thought about just stopping? She says, for the longest time, I thought I needed a drink. Maybe you have no idea what that feels like. Maybe for you, drink is prescription pills or food or pornography. Or maybe right now reading this, you're thinking you'd never do anything so dire. Can you imagine doing anything as dire as watching porn? God, she is boring. I really think that that's one of the most unrelatable chapters about alcohol I've ever read in my life. To be like, I was drinking and then drinking a glass of wine a night escalated to me blacking out on vodka and Xanax. And then I decided simply no more. And you can also decide simply no more. Like there really are no mediums. There's no middle ground in her entire life. Everything is as easy as just choosing one day. And And then it's solved for the rest of your life. Relationship to food, relationship to alcohol, relationship to your husband, relationship to your kids. If you just make a choice one day to have sex every day in September and never have another drink, your life will be perfect. Yes. The lie. There's only one right way to be. This actually, and I swear to fucking God, is a chapter about how when she was an adult, she made black friends and like she highly recommends it. (laughs) And then chapter 20. We've made it to the end, guys. The lie. I need a hero. And this is where you realize you don't need a hero you're your own hero so then she says you need to show up for yourself blah 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 you have the power you the exhausted mother of three who's considering heading back to work but is afraid she's been out of the loop too long you 50 pounds overweight and conscious that your health is in jeopardy if you don't make drastic changes you in your early 20s who wants to love but gives away your body in order to feel connection and only feels emptier you who wants better relationships with the people you love but can't let go of your anger in order to get there. You, all of you, any of you, stop waiting for someone else to fix your life. Stop assuming that someday it will magically improve on its own. Blah, blah, blah. Get up right now. Rise up from where you've been. Scrub away the tears and the pain of yesterday and start again. Girl, wash your face. The way she mixes actual life problems with her moral high horse bullshit is honestly beautiful. You're overwhelmed by being a single mother and 
just dealing with the day to day of having to keep everyone's life on track. You, you're overwhelmed by being something so horrible as out of shape. You, you're overwhelmed by being a slut. (laughs) Everyone could just rise up right now and wash their face and those problems will wash away. They did for me when I made the choice to stop drinking Diet Coke. Ashley. And vodka with Xanax. (laughs) Ashley. Yes. What did you think of the book? I found it very stressful to, I don't know, when you see number one New York Times bestseller on something so upsetting, it is a bummer when I think about how many people. I hope that they read this all with a grain of salt. I think with all self-help stuff, it's very horoscopy to me. Like, I think it's okay to take what resonates and leave what doesn't. But I just want to make sure no one is Bibling this bitch. <laughs> yeah, I feel the same way. Like if you did read this book at a time in your life when you needed to wash your face and you did, like God bless. I do think if you took away a lot of shame and feeling bad, then like no fuck this lady. Yeah, I do think that there is a huge chance in reading this book that she offers a lot more shame than grace. Yeah, And so that sucks. And I hate her for that. Also, who would want to be Rachel Hollis? She to me is so exactly what she is. The exact picture of someone lying about their existence. I don't know. Yeah. You guys, we love you so much. We have an amazing Patreon for you guys this week. I cannot wait to get into it. We're going to talk about Rachel Hollis a little bit more. We're going to explain all the scandals. Blind items, baby. We'll get into the blind items. We'll get into, um, obviously, the Kravis wedding, all of the drums. We love you so much. We're so excited to see you there. Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, wait, much. Ashley, who do you love? I love our five-star reviewers. Thank you so much to Cat, 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 K. Okay, I'll be a cat person if you say so. Thank you, Margaret FK. Fuck yeah. I don't know what FK stands for. Thank you, RJL26. I appreciate you times 26. Thank you, XOSDA Dance. Hugs and kisses back at ya. Thank you, a what? A what? This is a perfect review. Thank you, Cat Alice. You are my other favorite cat. Well named Alice. <laughs> Thank you, Lauren Simon Says. Simon Says, this is a perfect review. Thank you, Sal0623. I would sell away with you. Thank you, definitely displeased. I hope you're not so displeased that you're going to take back this five-star review. Thank you, Shirazi R. I'll rouse anyone you need because this is a perfect review and I'm forever on your side. Thank you, Cassie T96. You are my favorite type of calculator. Thank you, XOXOXOEasy. Um, hugs and kisses back at you. That was friggin' easy. Thank you, Arsonist666. I hope that you burn a house down and have a perfect and successful day. Thank you, Bananas123420. This review is so good. It's bananas. Thank you. Oh, wait. That's all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I love you to the friggin' moon and then back. Okay, bye.